This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in a series called The Storyteller, which is a series about parables. Parables are uh, stories or vignettes or sometimes even a couple of lines that Jesus told uh, to people, and they weren't just sort of allegories or moral lessons or like an Aesop's fables. Uh, they were little stories that had power to reveal something about God and something about the hearer. So when we hear a parable, that the purpose of a parable is to uh, open up our hearts, open up our eyes, open up our ears to understand something about Christ and something about ourselves and our need for him as well, something about how his kingdom works, it are these kinds of things. And the point that Jesus makes is that some people get them and some people don't. Some people's hearts are hard and they're unaffected. They just hear the story and say, okay, that's okay, and he warns us about that. But other people hear and they see something of God in it and they respond and their lives are changed. So we want to be the latter group, this kind of soil that bears fruit. So I'm going to read this parable that we're going over today uh, in Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in front of you in the chair. You can grab it uh, and look on with us. And uh, uh, and then I'm going to pray that God will open our eyes. Uh, this parable is very similar in point to the one we read last week. And so we had two parable, two weeks on grace, the prodigal son. And uh, this is a, a parable again that talks about God's ownership of all things and our responsibility and accountability to invest and use what he entrusts to us for his glory. Now, you may have heard a lot of parables and never heard this one preached on. And after I read it, you're going to say, so that's why I never heard it preached on. I have no idea what that's about. And, uh, or you're going to have an idea what it's about, but you're going to say, I can't believe Jesus said that. And so I felt like we got to cover that parable. Uh, the, 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 uh, the more confusing, the better, because I trust that's the kind of weeds you guys would want to get in and not, not stay with the easy stuff like the uh, prodigal son. So we're moving on. Here we go. Uh, Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to them, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We believe that your word is fundamentally uh, clear. It is always true, but it's fundamentally clear. 
and that you reveal truth to us from it. And so we pray today that we would not be the soil that just uh, hears for a moment and then is distracted. We pray against the enemy stealing the seed from our hearts, uh, but we pray that we would be the soil that receives your word and that it bears tremendous fruit, uh, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold harvest in our lives. So, Lord, make us different people by what we read. I pray that you would open our eyes to you. I pray that you would open our eyes to eternity, and I pray that you would soften our hearts and shape our wills that we might respond to you uh, humbly with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's look at what the story is uh, happens again, because you may not have read that before. It may have been a while. And so let me go through it a little bit and sort of retell the parable um, so that we get the details. And then um, this is one of the parables where Jesus tells us what it means, tells us how to apply it, rather. Uh, so we'll read some of his applications in a minute. And uh, that's always great when I don't have to create applications, but I just tell you what Jesus' applications are of the parable. So this is the story. There's a rich guy. And he has a manager who works for him, an agent, uh, a steward, a, someone who has authority to uh, manage his affairs. So it's not just merely an employee. It's a guy with some authority who uh, manages uh, the affairs for this owner, this rich man. And what happens is the rich guy finds out that this manager is, the word is, wasting his possessions. So he is mismanaging. We don't know what that means. Is he taking some for himself? Uh, Is he being sloppy with it and careless? Is he making bad decisions? Is he trusting untrustworthy people? We don't really know. Um, Is he overspending and undercollecting? Who knows, but he's doing something that is mismanaging. It uh, It is wasteful. It's enough to get him fired. He says, that's what I hear about you. Verse two, he says, turn in the account of your management, for you no longer can be a manager. So getting fired 2,000 years ago uh, when you worked for a rich guy in, um, uh, you know, in, in Palestine worked different than today if you get fired from working for a rich corporation. So they don't just say, sir, clean out your desk. We're walking you to the parking lot. He just says, turn in your book. So he still has the management book with all the records of what everybody owes. So he doesn't know what he's going to do. What does he say? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm unemployed, and he's got a big problem. This is a smaller community. It's not like, well, I had a bad experience in Dallas. I'll move to New York City where nobody knows me. Uh, he's known as a guy who now has mismanaged funds, so he's not going to get hired as a manager again. He knows that. I'm not going to get hired. So what am I going to do? He says, I, I, uh, I, I, how am I going to live? I'm not strong enough to dig. So digging would have just been a metaphor for manual labor. I mean, people did dig, but they did more than that. So he's saying, I can't get a manual labor job. Maybe he's old. Uh, Maybe he has physical weakness. Uh, Maybe he just doesn't want to do it. Uh, He says he can't. Uh, So he's been a white-collar worker in a world where most everybody earns their money through blue-collar work. He's in a culture that is primarily manual labor. He hasn't been doing manual labor, and he can't for some reason. So what is, and he can't do his white-collar job. He's not going to be entrusted with any, anybody's money. Can't manage anybody's wealth. So what's he going to do? He says, I can't beg. I'm too embarrassed. I'm ashamed to go out and be the person who's asking for a handout. So what am I going to do? And so he comes up with this plan. This is what he does. It says that he, uh, he decides to uh, summon the master's debtors one by one. That's an important line because we only hear him talking to two debtors, but he talks to all the debtors. 
One by one, he calls them all in. The first one, he says to them, okay, come on in. I want to meet with you. Uh, listen, how much is left uh, you know, that you owe to the boss, to my, to my boss? And he says, well, uh, I owe 100 measures of oil. Now, I know this is happening in the Middle East, but this is not oil. It's not crude oil or something. Not, there's no digging. Uh, this is olive oil or some other kind of oil. This is an agrarian society. So he says, I, I owe, you know, maybe it's olive oil. I owe 100 measures of olive oil so, or some kind of oil. And he says, okay, take your bill and sit down and write 50. So he says, look, I'm cutting what you owe in half. Now, do you think the person who owes the debt of 100 uh, measures of oil might be sort of inclined to like this guy? Wow, you're going to cut my debt in half? Uh, I like you. That's the goal of the transaction. I like you. So then he calls somebody in and he says, hey, uh, how much do you owe? And the guy says, well, I owe 100 measures of wheat. And he says to him, take your bill and write 80. I don't know why he didn't get 50% off like the other guy, but he gets 20% off, write 80. And uh, so this guy's got to be going, wow, this is amazing. Why is he doing all this with every debtor? Well, he tells us uh, back, uh, it says in verse 4, he says, uh, no, verse 3, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. What's he doing? He's making friends. He's making friends by alleviating their debt so that they will be in debt to him. He's doing them a favor in a culture where reciprocity was the norm. He's doing them a favor so that when he is in need, they'll remember, this is the guy that cut my debt in half, and he got fired, and he needs a place to live, so I'll welcome them into my houses. It's quite a strategy. I mean, he's, he can't dig. He doesn't want to beg, so he's just going to be like a freeloader. He's just, I'm going to go. I'll just fake, take people who I've done favors for, and if he get, did them all a favor, if one guy gets tired of you, you can probably go over to the oil guy house, and if he gets tired of you, you can probably go over to the wheat guy's house and whatever else. Probably the circumstance is this, that the rich man owns a a lot of farmland, and each of these debtors are tenant farmers. Most people were farmers in that day, and so they pay off their land. They're, uh, you know, they're growing wheat, and so they owe a certain percentage of the wheat. Uh, That's their lease for the land. So he's thinking, I'll just go to these tenant farmers, and they will take me in. These are large amounts, by the way. When it says the amounts that he has forgiven them, that he has written off for their loan, are significant amounts. One commentator said each of these is about worth uh, an annual year's wages. So he's, he's letting significant amounts of debt go by the wayside. And of course, you're following the story. The owner knows nothing about this. The owner simply thinks he's going to get the books to bring them back to report to me so I can see where things have been off. Wow, things are about to be way more off than the owner even knew. Now, here's the shocker of the story and why we don't read this passage and teach it and put it on coffee cups. The following verse, (laughs) go to the Christian bookstore, the following verse will not be on a coffee cup, even though it is uh, in the Bible. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager. For his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And again, no poster with a waterfall on it says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Uh, There's not a painting of light with that inscripted at the bottom. But it is in the Bible, so what is actually going on here? We need to start with who's making the commendation. It's a little unclear. Um, Verse 8, at the end of the day, it's not going to matter. because Jesus highlights the man as an example. But it's a little unclear who's making the commendation. Verse 8 says, the master commended the dishonest manager. So the natural assumption might be that this is the owner of the land, for he's been mentioned twice. The difference is when he's been mentioned before in verse 3 and verse 5, he's called my master uh, in verse 3, and in verse 5 he's called his master. In this verse he's called the master, and the word is Lord. It can be translated Lord. So some think this is actually Jesus speaking here. The Lord, the master, Jesus, because it has the definite article, the master. And usually in Luke, when the master or the Lord is written, it's referring to Jesus. So some think it is Jesus commending him. Some think it's the master. What's clear is the next verse is Jesus speaking for sure. So we don't know when Jesus comes in. The next verse says, For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The rich man's not going to say that. Okay, so the rich man's not going to say, hey, great job on, to the dishonest manager. And by the way, let me make this statement about eternity and the sons of light and the sons of this age. The rich man's a, not to be assumed to be a good guy by any means. We don't know anything about him, but that's clearly Jesus. So does Jesus speak verse 8 or does the master speak verse 8? It's a bit hard to figure that out, but what is clearly happening is that he's being commended, and then Jesus, verse 9, uses him as an example. Uh, When he says, I tell you, in essence, make friends yourself. In essence, there's something about what the guy did that you should emulate. So ultimately, the guy is commended, whether it's by the master or whether it's by Jesus. He's held up for something that he did is commendable. What is it that he did that's commendable? Well, it helps to look very carefully at what is commended. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He's commended for being shrewd. He's not commended for being dishonest. The parable is not about cheat people and prepare for yourself selfishly, and things will go well for you. The, the, the parable is not about, uh, you know, uh, dishonesty is the best policy. That is not what the parable is about. It is about a man who has done something shrewd, and then, shocker of all shockers, he is commended for this. What did he do that was shrewd? He thought ahead. He planned for his future. He acted decisively with foresight for what was coming. The guy looked ahead to what was coming, and he took action to prepare himself for what is coming. And that is shrewd. And Jesus said, this guy's got more game than all you Christians. He basically says, this guy... He has got more street smarts, he's, he's, he's wiser, uh, he is, he's doing better than the people in the church are doing. Why? Because he thinks ahead. Verse 9, uh, verse 8, the sons of this world, or it could be this age, the sons of this world or age, the footnote says, 
They are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's, he's got two ages and two sons in view here. There's the sons of this age, the sons of this world, the worldlings, the people that don't know Jesus, that don't know God, the people that are living as if there is no God, the people who are just regular folk on the world, not living for God, the sons of the world, the sons of this age. Then there are the sons of light, those men and women, children, whose eyes have been opened, and they are not part of the kingdom of darkness, they are part of the kingdom of light. They know Christ, they are followers of Christ, or at least at this point they're followers of God, Jesus, that maybe they just met Christ. But for our application, they are followers of Christ. And what's implicit? There's a contrast. The sons of this age know how to act in this age uh, better than the sons of light know how to act in the age to come. So you are of this age, if you're of this age, this world is all you have to live for, and the people who only have this age know how to navigate their own world better than Christians know how to navigate their world, which is eternity. We are of the age to come. Now, we live in this age, to be sure, but Paul says we are citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are fundamentally a son or daughter of the age to come. You are fundamentally already have eternal life. Uh, Eternal life is to know Christ, the Bible says. So if you know Christ, you already have eternal life. Eternity has already broken into your life. The Spirit of God has come into you as a down payment on the resurrection which is to come. So you are a citizen of the future. You are a citizen of the eternal kingdom that will be established following Christ's return when he brings a a new heavens and a new earth. So that is your identity. Now, we still live in this age. We're already in the age to come, but we're not yet in the age to come. So we are not sons of this world and sons of darkness. We're sons of light and children of the age to come, but we also navigate this age. And Jesus is saying, this guy, who's not commended for being dishonest, this guy was pretty smart. He knew how to act to do things that would be securing for him in this age. And you people, you're in the age to come, and you don't even know how to act. You act like there is no age to come. You act like this is all that there is. You're not very shrewd like this guy was. That's, the, that, that's kind of the punchline of what he is saying. Many Christians aren't very shrewd. We are living, we are to live for the age to come, but we don't really make very many plans for eternity. We're very short-sighted. This guy wasn't short-sighted. This guy planned. This guy looked ahead. This guy took action. Here's what this guy did that was shrewd. He didn't just say, well, whatever happens will happen. I'll just coast along and see what happens. No, he thought and he came up with a plan. It wasn't a God-honoring plan because it was dishonest, but at least he had a plan. And Jesus is saying, even the people that know God and are rooted in eternity and have an eternity in front of them, uh, even folks like that don't plan very well, don't really look ahead. They don't really take any decisive action. You know what they do? They just kind of float along like whatever happens will happen. That's convicting to me. I don't know about you. 
But it's convicting to me that, that I'm not very heavenly minded. There's the old saying that some people are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. And that is true of some people who check out and disengage from the world and aren't faithful in all of God's responsibilities he's given them because they're just waiting for the sweet by and by. That is true of some people. But it is equally true that many people are so earthly minded they're no heavenly good and that's what Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing the short-term mindedness that just lives for today and who doesn't live for eternity. You remember the parable last week? The guy had so, such a huge crop that he tore down his barns. He built bigger barns to store all of his crops, all of his wealth, and then he died. He didn't even make it through the night, and God said to him, you are a fool. Why? Because a fool is, is someone who believes there is no God. A fool, the Bible says, is like living as if God doesn't exist. And so that's what this is about. He is, he's, he's, it's foolish to live as if there is no eternity. And it's possible to be a Christian and to live our daily lives with very little reference to God, especially on using what he has entrusted to us which is what the parable is about. Okay, so Jesus gives three applications. We didn't read all these verses, but he gives three applications. And so I feel very confident uh, in, in, in saying, what do we do with this parable? Because, I don't feel confident in me, because Jesus tells us, here's what you should think about the parable. The first thing is use your resources with eternity in view. Use your resources with eternity in view. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And you read that and go, wow, that, that clears it all up for me. Does that just say I can buy my way into heaven? What is this about? And how am I supposed to use unrighteous wealth? The word unrighteous wealth, if you have a study Bible, will have a reference perhaps down at the bottom of the page. It's the word mammon. Maybe you've heard of that, mammon. It means earthly possessions. Why the translators uh, called it unrighteous, I, I'm not altogether sure. It could be because oftentimes uh, the wealth is neutral in the Bible. It's not viewed as righteous or unrighteous. Ultimately, just wealth itself, it's the motivation behind it. But often the motivation to get rich is, is tied to selfishness and is unrighteous. Often the rich people use their wealth in ways that oppress others and hoard for themselves, so that is unrighteous. So it could be that typically uh, wealth is thought of as, as, as uh, oftentimes unrighteously acquired and unrighteously managed. But what he's saying is the mammon, the stuff you have in life, use it with eternity in view so that when it's over, so that when you die and you have no more things, stuff and things, abilities, time, uh, resources, money, opportunity, once you have none of that, that you will be uh, received into eternal dwellings. So he's making a comparison. This guy was hoping that he could be uh, how, uh, you know, freeloading somebody's house, that somebody will take them into his house because he can't work. And Jesus is saying, no, in this situation, you are to wait for it to be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, here's the big question. Who are the friends uh, that, that welcome you, uh, make friends for yourselves? Who are the friends that welcome us um, into eternal dwellings? There's probably two views that I've read on this, and I think one's better than the other. Um, but one is that that's speaking of God. 
that ultimately trust the Lord and be welcomed by the Lord. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Probably the idea is the friends are those, like in the story, that you have benefited in some way. Friends, that you, people that you have taken what you have and you have used in some way to be a blessing for them, that once you, we find ourselves in eternity, there would be those that have benefited from our use of God's resources that he entrusted to us. What he's saying is you can use your resources in a way that have eternal value, eternal implications, that bless someone for, it will make an eternal difference, even in their lives. And that's why he's saying the sons of this age are acting shrewdly. The sons of light are not acting shrewdly because they're not realizing they're not thinking, I'm to use what I have with, eternity, with one eye on eternity, one eye on the present, seeking to be faithful. That's the second point. But one eye on the present, but one eye on eternity. So what kind of friends would that be? What kind of friends could be benefited or reached through what the Lord has entrusted to us. Well, I think biblically there's a lots of examples. Um, and, and in personal life, there's a lot of examples. It could be a poor person that somehow you helped. That would be someone who uh, would be a friend benefited by uh, your, um, that, that, that would be perhaps in eternity, that would be glad to see you who helped them. Or a person that is rescued from disaster because you gave funds to help with the disaster relief. Or an unemployed person that you knew that was on tight times that you paid their electrical bill. Or a kid that you scholarshiped to go to church camp or a mission trip, something like that. People that you um, extended hospitality, that you used your resources to welcome them. You took what God gave you and you welcomed others with it and befriended them, maybe even pointed them to Christ, obviously. The addict who was benefited by the ministry that you supported. The person that heard the gospel preached at the church that you faithfully gave money to support the ministry of. The person that you never met from a distant land who the missionary or the Bible translator that you funded took the gospel to them so that they heard of Christ and met him. The picture of the little kid that's on your refrigerator that you send monthly support who's an orphan to help him or her get an education and have food. Um, the, the, the examples are endless of how we can use what the Lord entrusts to us to be a blessing to others. And the point is, I don't have a detailed, authoritative uh, interpretation, to be frank, about what these eternal dwellings are, but, but here is the point that's abundantly clear. How we use our resources that we have in this age uh, have, have ramifications for eternity. They, 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 they have eternal impact is what I'm trying to say. People who don't even know the Lord act shrewdly and prepare for their future. Jesus is saying, how much more should a Christian act shrewdly and prepare for eternity? Now, it's not saying that you enter eternity by your works. Every page of the Bible teaches that is not the case. We enter eternity because it is a gift. 
We know Christ as a gift. We receive eternal life completely as a gift. It's all based on what Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sins, and being raised to give us new life. So it's all based on what Christ does that we're welcomed uh, into eternal life with uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit. All because of Christ. That is very clear. But because it is all of grace, we are then we are receive salvation by faith through uh, uh, by grace through faith. It's a gift to us, and then having received that, we are created, given a new life in Christ, so that we would do good works for the glory of God. So our salvation is clearly by grace, and you can't work to earn or deserve it. But having received grace, we are then to live a life which glorifies the Lord and which makes a difference. And surprise of all surprises, Jesus says here in other places as well, that it has a lasting impact. So I'm not saying life doesn't matter, just check out until heaven. I'm saying the exact opposite, that life totally matters because what we do has ultimate meaning because it's not just for this life but has eternal implications of what we do today. So he's saying those who are living for today, they're shrewd in what they do. What you do has eternal implications, so you should be very shrewd in what you do. And sadly, worldly people are often more shrewd at taking advantage of their opportunities than are Christians at taking advantage of their opportunities. We're to act shrewdly like the guy, decisively, boldly, intentionally serving others, not so that they will provide a place for us to stay, as he did, but so that God will be glorified, others are benefited, and there are eternal implications and values to that. He's saying, in essence, shouldn't you take eternity as seriously as this guy takes having a roof over his head after he's unemployed? Shouldn't we at least take eternity Uh, that seriously. Now, this is foreign to us, and it's foreign to our culture because we live in a consumer-oriented culture. And consumerism is about living for the moment. Consumerism is about I earn, I receive, and I spend for my immediate benefit. It is, it is for the, the, the implications are that I want to receive an immediate gratification for what I have. Maybe it's saving for retirement, so it's a little bit of a delayed gratification, but it's I want to get to that place so that when I'm unable to work, I can spend what I have. You know, it's delayed consumerism. You know, I have immediate consumerism and I have time-released consumerism so that when I retire, then I'll just be a consumer and not worry about anything else. Uh, So we, we tend to live towards what I get is to be spent for the here and now and for me. And Jesus says, don't think as a consumer, think as an investor. Think about being a manager, a faithful manager of what he has, and think about using what you have to glorify God and to bless other people And think about that, even though there's mystery attached to this, think about that having eternal value. Eternal value. It's thinking as an investor rather than a consumer. Now, helping someone, blessing someone, giving someone to someone, that's a blessing in itself. Jesus said it's more blessed, you're more blessed to give than to receive. So just taking what I have and using it 
to bless someone else, to help someone else, to serve someone else, to benefit someone else in some practical way. There's a joy in that. There's a huge blessing. If there was nothing else, that would be more than enough because that honors the Lord, that represents him to others. But he says, make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. And uh, that's Jesus, not me, that said that. He's saying there is eternal benefit as well. Um, to what we are doing in the here and now. And that makes the here and now more important, not less important. More important, not less important. God honors those who honor him. And we can get lost in the weeds of all that. I know I can. I've thought about this all week. We can get lost in the weeds of make friends with unrighteous wealth who are going to welcome us to eternal dwellings. You can get in the weeds real quick on that. <clears throat> but I recommend pulling back and getting the big picture, which is very clear. One guy wrote this. Will anyone be glad to see me in heaven as a result of how I use my resources? That's the simple question that he's saying. Will anybody be glad to see me in heaven? Back years ago, there was a really cheesy Christian song uh, that I don't remember all the lyrics, but it was about a guy goes to heaven. I mean, I shouldn't say it's cheesy. I'm sure he was sincere. The guy's more, more godly than me. What am I saying? Judging him. So that was bad. Take that back. I, forgive me for saying it was judging this guy. But anyway, he said, you know, he had this song, and it's his story song. So it's kind of a country song because country songs are always story songs, except it wasn't a bar and a pickup and fishing. And it was uh, this guy gets to heaven. And he comes up and, and people approach to him and they say, hey, thank you for giving to the Lord. I was the person that uh, you gave to the church and that funded vacation Bible school and I was the kid who went to vacation. That's not the real thing, but something like that. I went there and heard the gospel. I, so it was this story that I thought was kind of corny, but it's actually kind of biblical. It, it was about we can use things that have an eternal value to them. Will anybody be glad to see me? Because of how I used my resources, would there be any eternal blessing to others? So use your resources with eternity in view. Number two, be faithful in little things. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with, uh, to you true Riches, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So he's saying, be faithful in little things. That is just a biblical principle that we can find elsewhere. Be faithful in little things. Uh, you, could see that in, um, you could see that in your work. That be faithful in the small things on your job. Fulfill your commitments. Honor your deadlines. Come in under budget. Be on time for meetings. Come prepared with your reports. Return your emails. The little things, just be diligent in the little things, and often what you'll find is most people don't, and there will be a pathway for increased responsibility. Your boss wants to give increased responsibility to the person who showed up on time, fulfilled his report, who just did what he said he was going to do. That guy gets promoted. That, that, that's a principle in life. It's a principle in, in church life. Somebody says, hey, I want to I be a leader at the church. I, I want to lead a small group. Start by attending. Start by, like, do you go to a small group? Well, no, I just want to lead one. Well, let's start with attendance. <laughs> uh, uh, do you participate? Uh, do you care and serve other people when you're not the leader? So it's not on, you're not officially charged to care for anybody, but are you caring for anybody? If, if, if uh, there was an announcement in the group, Joe's going to lead a new group, I'm just picking a random name. Joe's going to lead a new group where people go, would there be a gasp? 
Joe's only been here one time. Joe's doesn't care for anybody. Or people go, of course, that's a no-brainer. When's he starting? Faithful and little, given more responsibility. It works in jobs. It works in sports. It works in church. It's a principle that someone who's faithful in small things should be. It's not working your way up the ladder, so to speak. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying they should be entrusted with other more valuable things because uh, they acted in a trustworthy manner. They took care of someone else's stuff, is what Jesus says here. Now, that may be principles that we know, but what Jesus is saying is that the very little is your finances. We think of finances as very big, but he's saying make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, and then he's saying if you've not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? Jesus is not saying he, the principles there, go to, uh, you know, return your emails, come to work early, work hard. The principle's there, but that's not the application. The application is how have you treated your wealth. And he says the way you treat your wealth will affect your ability to manage greater things, more spiritual things, true riches is what he calls it. So the very little thing to be faithful in is finances. God entrusts us with his wealth, and if we use what he's given, very, this little thing, then he will entrust us with true riches, is what Jesus is saying. Be faithful in little things, and the little thing is our riches. What does that mean? Well, I think it means the way we manage our resources is a barometer of our heart before the Lord. And as we manage them faithfully, generously, godly, then the Lord gives greater responsibility in his kingdom. And he likely gives greater responsibility in eternity. Because the whole passage is talking about eternal dwellings. There is the contrast between the age to come and the sons of this age. And he talks about true spiritual riches. So the true riches could be riches of the kingdom in this life. But they also could be, not money, but spiritual riches. They could be that. Uh, But it could be as well greater responsibility. You managed your money uh, well, generously in this life. There was given uh, responsibility in eternity. Where do you get that? Well, he doesn't say that right here, but the Bible says very curious things along these lines. Like 2 Timothy 2 says, we will reign with Jesus. The Bible talks about Christians having reigning responsibilities in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the Bible says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says, we will judge angels. What does that mean? I'm trying to answer passages that are hard to understand with passages that are harder to understand. That's not a good preaching tip, by the way. Uh, If you want to be a preacher, you take things that are hard to understand, give something easy. But I'm just trying to tell you that the Bible says things that I can't explain them all, but I can step back and go, this life counts forever. And my checkbook counts forever. I, I can draw that conclusion. How can I honor the Lord with it to be given true riches, which is not give some money and God will give you a lot more money. I'm not talking prosperity theology. Well, I am talking about prosperity theology, but it's a different kind of prosperity. It's not a nicer car and a nicer house. It's responsibility in God's kingdom, which is a very different, very different thing. So he, here's, here's a practical application. Let me give a super practical application on this. Be faithful. Here's what we know. There's some things that are a little unclear, but here's what we know. Be faithful in little. Faithful in very little. Okay, verse 11, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, okay, we don't have to go any further. Jesus says, be faithful in what you have. That's an application, crystal clear, no question. So how do I apply that? 
Well, here's how we apply this. We begin by looking at how we use our resources. We take inventory of what we have, and we take inventory of how we spend what we have, and that is the word budget. That's how we do. If you want to practically say, man, this is spiritual. What do I do to fulfill Luke 16, 10, and 11? The practical application is to be, I cannot be faithful if I don't know what I have. I cannot be faithful if I don't know where it goes. I can't. And I struggle like anyone in the room, maybe not everybody, but a lot of us, I struggle like everybody in getting the little things in view and managing them and planning with them and being accountable with them. I like anybody else. I, I get that. That is not necessarily an easy thing, but that is an important thing. And if you experience a challenge in this area, you are not alone. There is no shame in saying, I, I want to get better at this. I struggle with this. I'm not very good at this. I'm the consumerism person you described. There's no shame in acknowledging that as long as we are seeking to tra- change and ask for help to repent and be different, and we all can. And this, why am I talking about this? Because this is a huge, huge, huge issue for us in our culture and in this city. I was in a meeting a few months ago, and I only tell this just to prove the point because it was eye-opening to me, so I'm not telling the story for any other reason. I was in a meeting with a number of pastors from the city of Frisco, and we were meeting... Uh, we were meeting with the mayor of the city. And one of the past, it was a Q&A time, and one of the pastors asked, what do you see as needs in the city of Frisco? And the mayor, this is where he started, the issue we're talking about right now. He said, could the church, if, if you guys want to help in our city, the leaders, the spiritual leaders in the church, could you help people with their finances? He said, Frisco has Double, double the national median income. And yet, so many in the city are a paycheck away because we live way beyond our means, a paycheck away from not being able to pay their mortgage, their rent, a paycheck away from being homeless. And he said, this was so insightful. I really appreciate him saying this. And he said, and the greater concern perhaps is the next generation is being raised to say, this is how you live. So it will be worse for our future if we don't just help people. It wasn't a comment that's judgmental, nor are mine. It's not judgment. It's not critique. It's not heaping up on people and making them feel bad. It's saying, here's a need. How can we help people? And the greatest way that we can help people is get Jesus' point of view on it to start with and then get help to be faithful. So here, here's what you can do. Um, we, we provide training in this area, and I'm so sorry we're not providing it in the next week, but we uh, have typically done the Financial Peace University course, which is a means of helping people uh, manage their finances. We do that. It just helps you in all these areas. We ran it last fall. Uh, We'll run it this coming fall. But I want to give you an option before then. If you want help, we have a number of people in our church that are very skilled, very wise at uh, managing their finances and helping others do so. And th- we, they would be willing to sit down and meet. If you would like help, we can have someone sit down with you and just help you. I mean, just sit down with you, have a meeting, 
kind of get you on board and then, you know, get you through the summer and then you can take the class in the fall perhaps or something like that. We want to help you personally. I also want you to know that none of these people are certified financial planners that sell financial instruments. So they're not going to say, what you need to do is buy this mutual fund that I make a 5% commission on. They're not that kind of person, they're, which there's nothing wrong with financial planning. That's great. But these are, the church isn't doing that. <laughs> these are people voluntarily who'd want to help. Uh, one of them is our church administrator, who was a guy who was standing right here leading uh, us in song this morning, Tim Payne. Here's his email address. Um, you can email Tim, write this down, tim.payne at Grace Church Frisco. He knows I'm putting this up here. <laughs> How would that be? I just got volunteered to help hundreds of people. Um, uh, come to him, ask for a personal loan. No, just kidding. Uh, come to him and uh, say, I'd like to sit down and meet. And he will get one of our people who do this or he himself, one of them, will set an appointment with you. So I don't have the class, but I got personal. They'll sit down and have a meeting with you and offer that. That's how we can start to be faithful. If we want to get totally on the ground with this thing and not get lost in the weeds of eternal habitations and unrighteous wealth and making friends in heaven, blah, blah, blah. If we want to get right down here, here's what we do. We sit down and say, how do I figure out what comes in? How do I figure out what it, where it goes? And how do I direct that in a God-ordained uh, way that will please the Lord and serve others? And that may be a long plan to get where you want to be, but it starts with taking one step, sending one email. So there you go. Lastly, serve God alone, and that's where he closes. So he says, the first thing he says is, uh, uh, use, the first thing he says is use your resources with eternity in view. That's the best way I know to summarize verse 9. The second thing he says is be faithful in little things. That's verses 10 through 12. And then he says, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So God and God alone, we sang that this morning. He's saying you really can't have two masters. It's impossible. Um, And so he's basically saying... uh, ultimately, he is God. He's saying, you know, find your life in God and God alone for eternity. That's, that's where life is. There's no life outside of him, but only in him. Problem is, the sons of light aren't thinking ahead. We're thinking as if this world is everything. And the scripture calls that foolish. Think ahead. Think for eternity. The reality is the temptation for me and the temptation for you, if you're honest, if I'm honest, is to say we're tempted to not serve God but to serve money. And because of the environment we live in, we don't even see it. it, it, it we're just blind to it. And, and we, we money and finances and stuff and things, we think about it. That This is a sign when I'm worshiping it. Nobody sits down and kneels down before a $100 bill. No, that's not worshiping money. But it's living this kind of life, worrying about money, anxious about money, using money to make myself feel better when I'm discouraged, buying something. I'm really depressed, but a new pair of shoes will help. It's just consumer. It's spending to make myself feel better. It's spending and then having to spend my life taking care of all the stuff that I no longer even like that I bought way back when I thought that I needed. It's about not only buying stuff but dreaming about the next purchase and spending hours on the Internet investigating and planning and getting the best deal on the next purchase. And uh, my heart, you know, planning and, and rooted in the next purchase, which could be something very small or something huge. It's building our identity on what we wear, 
building our identity on what we drive, building our identity on where we live, or worrying about what we wear, where we live, what we drive. It's, it's, it, and then there's others who say, well, you know, I, I'm not like that. I, don't, I pride myself that I don't spend lots of money on stuff like our culture does. We can be a little self-righteous about that. I'm not like all the Frisco people. I'm substantive and have meaning and am self-righteous, uh, basically, is what that's saying. So it's the person who does, just because I'm not living for stuff and things all the time doesn't mean I'm living for the Lord can't serve God and mammon just because I might not be as materialistic as the next person that I'm judging, in my view. That, that doesn't mean I'm serving God. So he's saying, turn from that and find real riches in me. What motivates our heart? To whom do we give glory? To whom do we serve? Am I seeking to save my life or lose it? And am I taking freely all that I have to use for God's glory, or am I hoarding it for myself? When we see what a treasure Christ is, the Scripture says that we'll, that we'll get rid of everything else and take the treasure because he's worth everything. Everything we're chasing in consumerism, we'll never find. It's a chase that goes on and on and on and on. Nobody ever says, well, I finally got enough and I'm happy. There's a little bit more. And the more stuff, the more worry and the more anxiety and the more maintenance and the more distraction. It's a never-ending cycle if we're chasing stuff and things from our heart rather than using stuff and things to serve others and to glorify God because Jesus is our treasure. And we say whether I have a ton of stuff or whether I have very little stuff, you know, it's, it's, that's not even an issue because Jesus is my treasure. He has given his life for me he has taken care of my greatest need, how I was under the judgment of God. He has taken care of my greatest need. He will take care of all my lesser needs. He's good and he's faithful. He's worthy of my trust. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I have him and I'm preparing for an eternity with him. And my goal today, our goal today, is to simply say, Lord, how can I take what I have and how can I use it for Eternity, not for glory for myself, not really ultimately motivated to, but what great thing will I have in eternity? But just saying, Lord, it's you. I have you in eternity. And it is my deep joy to use my gifts, my time, my talents, my abilities, my finances, my possessions, my family, my friends, whatever I have, to leverage them for you. For you are everything you have given your life for me. If you have Christ, you are truly rich. You have found true riches the kind he talks about. And since we have those true riches, he says, be faithful in the little things. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.